You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. Thank you for joining me. This is the last episode of Communication Mixdown for a few months as we're taking a short break. Today we're talking about sex, so a quick warning that this interview contains some strong language. Having said that, we have a lot to get through today, so let's get started. I'll let my guest introduce himself. My name is Damon Young. I'm a philosopher and author. Uh, I've written uh, The Art of Reading, uh, Philosophy in the Garden, um, How to Think About Exercise, six uh, children's picture books, starting with uh, My Nana is a Ninja and ending with My Dad is a Dragon. And my most recent book is On Getting Off Sex and Philosophy. And that's what we're talking about today. And to be honest, it feels like a bit of an awkward time to be talking about sex. Um in a way, that's good. It's good because one of the points I wanted to make in on getting off is that sex is always political. It always occurs in a social and political context. Um, it always involves vice and virtue, in which case it's also ethical. Um, I, this idea of sex being almost a kind of very thin, isolated cord of libido that just runs through existence and that's it. That's all sex is. Um, There's a real kind of dangerous reductionism there where we pretend that sex isn't related to these much bigger social, economic, ethical forces. So the, the context in which we're talking is often horrible, but... I think it works very well as a context for my book. You know, one of the starting assumptions is, you know, sex is never just sex. What is it then? Well, one thing I wanted to to point out really early on in on getting off that sex, first of all, means multiple things. So, yes, sex involves the libido. Um, there, There are these instinctual urges that we have. But they're never just instinctual urges alone. They get channeled into various ways. They get channeled by our psychology, um, by our social context. They get channeled economically. So you have libido. uh, You have uh, romance, which is the way in which sex, uh, way in which we encounter another human being as another human being. Um, We have the erotic, which is the kind of, aesthetic charge that attracts us to people and things. So I think, you know, we can talk about the erotic as a kind of magnetic force, but it's not just between people. It's a kind of spark in life that draws us in. Now, when we talk about sex, we might have a a libidinous encounter with someone that's chiefly about getting our rocks off. 
Um, it might not involve the romantic. We might have a romantic relationship with someone that doesn't involve the libido very much at all. We might have an erotic attraction to someone that, that has nothing to do with getting our rocks off. So what I'm trying to do in On Getting Off is, is give a full picture of like the structure of sex. What are all the parts that make it up? And then show how all of these different parts um, compete and collude in different circumstances. What motivated you to write the book? Um, I was motivated, I think, by a combination of curiosity and suspicion. So I'm really curious about our everyday activities. So as I've said, I've, I've written books on gardening. I've written books on exercise. I've written books uh, on, on distraction, on reading. I'm interested in the way our everyday activities become so familiar that we stop thinking about them. And then I ask, well, hang on, what, what are we doing here? What are these activities and what's their value? And I wanted to do that with sex because I think there's a really strong tendency to just assume we know what it is and what it means. Uh, and, and that's it. We kind of naturalize it. So we say, oh, that's just sex. Oh, we know what sex is. And there's, there's this, um, strong, almost Freudian trend, um, which I, I actually discuss in the final chapter of the book, where we assume that things symbolize sex. Oh, you know, trains going into a tunnel, that's sex. Or someone using a sword, that's sex. Or two people looking at each other, that means sex. And what I want to say is, well, hold on, if those things mean sex, and they sometimes don't, but if they do, well, what does sex mean? Like it's sort of the idea that you've hit the bottom of things once you hit sex. And I'm saying the opposite. Actually, no, sex is a great opportunity to think more about sex. So that was the curiosity part. That was me saying, well, let's think more about this. The suspicion part was when I looked at the history of philosophy. I thought, well, I wonder what philosophers have said about sex, either in their own lives or, you know, as an abstract discussion. And most of the time, the philosophers are either ignoring it or trivializing it or treating it as something disgusting, if not evil. And so that made me suspicious. I sort of I started to wonder, well, why is it that philosophers don't want to talk about this? Or, or when they do want to talk about this, they're really negative. Um, so, yeah, curiosity and suspicion. Sex is imprisonment by the body among philosophers discussed in your book who equate sex with the loss of equanimity. To me, it seems like the equanimity that they're talking about is a kind of death, isn't it? Yes. I mean, for, for some philosophers, it's almost like they're seeking a sort of deadened state. They're, they're seeking a state uh, where they're not perturbed, where they're not worried, where they're not anxious, where they're not let down. They're, they're seeking this point of stillness. And I, I totally get why. I, you know, life is hard and we're often seeking respite from pain or awkwardness or embarrassment. But, but philosophers have this habit of making a kind of theory of this where the end point is this sort of perfect, eternal, transcendent stillness. And if that's what you're seeking... Often it makes sense to say, well, you know, the body really is an obstacle to this. Now, what's interesting is that in other traditions, uh, in the yoga tradition, for example, uh, you find the body being a way into that, 
the idea that by using your body, you yoke yourself back to your original self, to your higher self. Now, some yoga is completely dualistic, as was Plato, but it's just interesting the way that sometimes these traditions diverge. Some embrace the body, whereas some seem to you know, run away screaming. In a way, um, when you're talking about in the book about how like it's, you know, sex is, you know, we just don't talk about it because we all know what it is. And it, in a way, it seems to me like the the obvious thing to me is that, of course, of course, you're in a body. You know, of course, you're in a body. It just, you know, you are yes, 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 <laughs> of course, of course. But it's it's. Um... The body is a problem for philosophy and has been a problem for thousands of years. And it's only recently in the history of philosophy that philosophers have tried to explicitly and systematically put the body back. Plato's an interesting case because he was a handsome, fit aristocrat who obviously was familiar with sex and sexuality. But nonetheless, he, he's treating the body as sort of the enemy of philosophy. Now, sometimes he says, through love of beauty, and he means a beautiful boy, through love of beauty, you can be guided to the beautiful and through the beautiful to the good. And so in love, you can kind of be guided towards philosophy and a philosophical life. But even then, he says, but you must not have sex. Because that wastes it all, and your, you know, your 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 body drags down your soul into the mire, and yeah, I, my approach to that is just it's just nonsense. You know, I, I understand how these urges can make us uncomfortable. It can seem like there's some other thing inside of us that isn't quite us, but is us, and it, it's troublesome. But but my my kind of starting point here has been, no, we can think through sex and sexuality. The, these things are wonderful prompts for thought. We can't do that by ignoring our body or treating the body as an enemy. So at the very start of your book, you start by talking about your own sexual awakening. It's sort of described as invoking an atmosphere of selfhood, and but as a beginning of a lifetime's deficit. Um, can you can you talk a little to that? Well, it was the idea that the feelings I had for this classmate, with whom I really had no other relationship, you know, I just noticed her thighs for the first time, and I noticed them in this very strange new way. And it was so strange that I was aware of it. I was aware of like I, I've never had this feeling before. I've never looked at another human being with this feeling before, and it was sort of permeated with a sense of self. It felt like my feelings. I, I knew this was me feeling this about her. But at the same time, it felt like a common sense, common sense fact in the world. You know, I, I was, this was my desire, but it seemed to adhere to her body. And I, I was drawn to her. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I had no idea what was going on, but I, I felt like I was suddenly lacking something. That, that, that there was something there I needed and, you know, henceforth there would always be something I needed. I would always be in deficit because there would always be this something, this, this beauty or the erotic or whatever it is, saying, you haven't got this, you haven't seen this, you haven't enjoyed this, you haven't touched this, this isn't yours. Now, the adult me says, damn right it's not yours. <laughs> 
but I, I'm talking about how weird it was as a child to suddenly feel this way. I really like that that conceptualization of sexuality as a as a sort of invoking a greater selfhood in a way, but at the same time with the contrast of the deficit. And look, it makes a lot more sense looking back. Looking back, I can see how suddenly I was projecting my feelings upon the whole world, that suddenly the world had become sexualized. It wasn't before. And yet also I suddenly felt very small and alone and distant from the things that I desired. And that, that's why, once again, I think sex is a really interesting philosophical problem because all these weird mishmashes of, of self and other, of self and world, of, of body and mind, um, of I and thou, they all get tangled up in a way that they aren't necessarily when you don't have these feelings. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're with Communication Mixdown on 3CR, and I'm talking to philosopher Damon Young about his latest book on getting off, Sex and Philosophy. You mentioned just now sexualization of the world, and I mean this is not the exact point, but it's sort of you do mention in the in the book you kind of dismiss this idea that we have all these sexual thoughts through the day. You know, those all those you dismiss those um, those studies. Can you can you talk a little to the, the sexualization of society as opposed to the sexual self in society? I suppose. I suppose the first thing is that these studies, my, my main point there is just that they're not very reliable because they don't define what a thought is and they don't really define what sexual is and they often don't allow for the fact that the questions may be prompting the feelings. So they're unreliable. Um, but some later studies came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe we have a handful of sexual thoughts a day. And the, the sort of the philosopher in me just sort of asks, well, what's a thought? Like, what do you mean by a thought? Do you mean like a, a stray feeling, a desire? Do you notice someone's thighs? Do you notice their eyes? Are you drawn to the cut of their clothing? What are you talking about? Um, do you really mean that, say, 10 or 20 times a day, someone has a fully-fledged fantasy of sexual intercourse with another person? Do you, like, do you know what I mean? Like, It's, it's so deeply I, implausible I, to me. Exactly. Now, that's slightly different, I think, from... Yeah, we are sexual beings. Of course, we can be erotically drawn to people and things. And of course, we will relate to people differently as sexual beings. There's all kinds of sexual content that happens all day, every day, partly prompted by our surroundings because people are trying to sell us stuff. And they know that sometimes the quickest way to get our attention is to draw on our, our sort of sexual selves, whether it's quite explicitly 
um, or whether it's subtly in that they kind of sexualize the product, they associate it with sexual things. So yeah, sure, we're, we're often, um, there are constantly these messages bouncing off us that have some kind of vaguely or explicitly sexual content. But, but I actually think this is sex and sexuality as kind of simmering very gently around us um, over the course of the day, ebbing and flowing, depending on our circumstances and our moods and who we're with. That's quite different to this kind of crude notion that, you know, we think about sex 30 times a day, which I think, I think just kind of is a caricature of adult sexuality that has very little to do with our inner lives. It is also a caricature of a certain type of adult sexuality, isn't it? It's sort of, it, I, I kind of think of it's interesting when you say, you said that you kind of use like a man kind of, we think, you know, it, it is yeah. kind of like a, a very heterosexual male kind of. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, I get it. Like, you know, I, I know what it is to have a sexual response to the world, but it's, it's just such a, it's such a, dim caricature of what it is to be a man, let alone a human being. And it kind of, it's this picture of manhood consists of essentially just being a pair of testicles that has transport, you know, and well, we just kind of spend all day just sort of squirting around the world or preparing to, yeah. which, and I think, uh, you know, as, as befuddled as I am with desire and sexual interest, that's just, I just don't think that's what life is. What do you think the impact of being surrounded in the cultural milieu, advertising, um, all the selling, all of all the things that exploit sex to sell or market? But what sort of influence do you think that might have on sexuality or how our sexualities are manifest? It's a good question. I don't know. I, I think we've because we are the kind of animals we are, I think we're always surrounded by sexual imagery and intimations and relationships, whether we like it or not. You know, unless authorities go to great efforts to stifle this, um, we're always creating sexual situations and within those creating sexual works whether it's movies or TV or books or songs or dances or whatever it is. So there's, there's always kind of, I, I think we live in a world in which it might be said that there are always mature themes. You know, that would be the warning that comes with the human situation. Warning, there are mature themes here. And also, if you try to stifle that, it actually comes out sometimes more strongly. It sexualizes the world more intensely because... Um, you're constantly trying to suppress it. So, you, you know, it's sort of always part of your 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 daily psychological labour is is grappling with sex in a way that sometimes isn't if you're less oppressed. But anyway, I think what complicates things now, though, is that it becomes very difficult sometimes to extricate sex and sexuality from commodification because that's the form in which we so often encounter sex now is as advertisement or as purchasable media or whatever it is. Then you have to do the kind of psychological, intellectual, ethical work to disentangle sex and sexuality from the ways in which you're being sold 
sex and sexuality from from not just the messages but the way in which it's packaged from the stories we tell ourselves from the kinds of transactional relationships we have so yeah i i, I think that's that's one problem it is that it it's it's not just the presence or absence of sex you know it's not just the idea that we're being bombarded which i think is the kind of popular notion I think it's that we're being bombarded in a very particular way in a very particular situation, which is capital. In the book, you make an argument for using the word fucking rather than sex for intercourse. Can you talk a little about the argument you make and and how and and your thought process? For sure, yeah. So the word sex is a safe kind of word. It's a sterile word. It's it's a word that is official. It's a word used by teachers and governments um, and advertisers and so on. And that's that's partly because of its its heritage. It's it's not a kind of raw Anglo-Saxon word. It's a it's a word that comes to us by Norman French and Latin. And only recently has the word sex had anything to do with the act or with sexuality. Um, it used to just mean the division of the sexes. Um, so it has a long history of scientific or quasi-scientific division, meaning that, and a very short history <laughs> with fucking. And I think that when we use the word sex, often it can have a kind of deadening, sterilizing, anesthetizing effect, which which you don't have when you say screw or fuck or whatever it is. And so I, I use these words in the book because they they have a lot more to do with everyday life and my experiences and it would kind of falsify experience i think if i just used the official acceptable intellectual terms and you use a quotation from another um, philosopher yes that's right um yeah he says we we draw up these world pictures um and and in doing so forget ourselves so we have these nice neat neutral pictures of the world that we draw up um, and we call them objective or we call them neutral um, and yet they're not because we don't include ourselves in those pictures they're missing the fact of our very existence and the fact of our participation in these worlds so yeah I, so similarly when i draw these pictures of sex in my book using language, I want to use language that does justice to to my experience and I hope to others. So we have in Australia right now in the last month talked a lot about sex or had a lot of discussions about sex, but we're not talking about sex as you're talking about it. I want to draw out a thread because I think you do it really well in the book. You kind of talk towards the end about how I think you're talking about patriarchy. Dworkin kind of talking about the patriarchy and how women are sort of, I think someone else called it a cell phone, you know, heterosexual sex is like the worst. Participating in your own oppression was what Dworkin said, I think. Yes. Um, and, and you argue against that. I'm very sympathetic to Dworkin's position, um, which is which is essentially that, you know, that you you can't, there's no outside the patriarchy here, um, but but I do think it's reductionist. I do I do think the idea that any woman who enjoys sex with a man is complicit in her own oppression um, that just seems a denial of women's agency. So I, I fully accept that this is a patriarchal context in that that men not only have power but are doggedly trying to maintain power. Um, through all kinds of means, implicit and explicit, you know, immediately psychological and financial, 
It's constant. It's distraction, denial, name-calling, gaslighting. These are all attempts to maintain the status quo. I think that is the case, and there's no point pretending it isn't the case. But what I wanted to do in this book is to leave room for the agency of the people involved and just to say that if women are saying they recognise this and yet they are enjoying their sex and their sexuality with men involved. I'm not in a position to deny that. Speaking somewhat less philosophically and more anecdotally, more personally, I am regularly astounded that women want anything to do with us. Just astonished, given the the immense backlog of violence, coercion, exploitation. Like, it astonishes me. And yet, here we are. No power system is absolute. No, it's not. And I, I don't believe it is. And I, I really wanted to to make a point to argue for that in the book. I think it's just, not only is it just philosophically false that you can just reduce whole systems to these neat power structures, but I also think it, it really does just deny people's everyday experiences. You, you end up having to believe that women, heterosexual women, are deluded or lying. And I don't believe that's the case. What I do believe, though, is that that fact shouldn't be an excuse to do nothing because it, it like it's the fact that women enjoy men's company, men's intimacy, that they can find pleasure with men. That's kind of like, oh, we've done our work then. You know, uh, women are getting off, so they don't really need equal pay or equal representation in parliament or equal representation in business. That You know, they don't really need to be able to walk home and feel safe at night. Like it's... It's one of those situations where this is one of the few joys that we can find. And and I don't want to sully it, but at the same time, it's not, it's like, it it doesn't mean the work's over. You know what I mean? That's kind of ridiculous masculine power fantasy that you could give sexual, sexual pleasure to the woman. Like, it's like, what an amazing superhuman I am. That was Dr. Damon Young talking to me about his book on getting off. As I mentioned at the start of this show, this is the last episode of Communication Mixdown for a few months as we're taking a bit of a break. I hope you will join us again on the other side. We're going out tonight with a song chosen by Damon. This is Donna Summer with I Feel Love.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.